Good morning. Feels like I'm loud today, but not that's a bad thing. But I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. Glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Uh, before we get started, I do want to just give a few words to those graduates that we honored a little bit earlier. Um, number one, I haven't been here very long, and so I'm not one of those people who can look at the pictures on the slide and be like, oh, I remember that. They were so tiny. I'm, I can't do that. However, I do know that there are a lot of people here that genuinely love you and care about you, and I know it's been a pleasure for them to see you grow up spiritually and physically. And um, even though I haven't been here that long, it's a joy for me to see those pictures and see the lives that uh, have developed here at Prairie View. And the word I want to give you is that regardless of where you're going or what you're doing, whether you're graduating high school or college or going into a job or going to school, whatever it is that you're doing, know that you are going into ministry. You are going into ministry. Going into ministry does not mean you have to go to Bible college. It does not mean you have to go to work at a church. If you are a follower of Christ, you are going into ministry. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're going to school, work, whether you're going to be a doctor, engineer, whatever it is, know that you are doing ministry and that you are called to be serving Christ in whatever it is that you're doing. And regardless of where that takes you, regardless of where you end up going, regardless of the high points and the low points of life, know that you have a church here that cares about you, that loves you, that is praying for you. If you know nothing else, know that. So that's just the quick thing I wanted to give to you. Um, Last week, we started going through Mark chapter 6, continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we looked at Jesus' role as shepherd. There were 5,000 people, 5,000 men actually, not including all the women and children, that came to Jesus to hear him teach. And he saw that they were hungry. And the disciples said, well, we should just send them away to get their own food. And Jesus says, no, we shouldn't. Let's take care of them right here. And the reason Jesus did that is because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And we talked about how what a shepherd does is he does several things. Number one, he guides the sheep. He makes sure they don't get lost. He protects the sheep from predators or from injury. And then he provides for the sheep. He makes sure that they are found in places where they can have access to, to uh, food and water and plenty of places to graze. So the shepherd takes care of the sheep in a lot of different ways. And in Jesus, we see that he's the kind of shepherd that leads with compassion. He's not the kind of shepherd that leads with force or with harshness. He views them as sheep without a shepherd. And today we're going to look at that theme a little bit again, not quite so directly, but we're going to see Jesus protecting his flock, taking on that role of protector over the flock that he is called to lead. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 30. So Mark chapter 7, we're going to have verses up on the screen like we do every week. We also have Bibles scattered throughout the room if you want to use one of those, but starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, 
but eat with defiled hands. So up to this point in Mark, Jesus has been spending more time in Gentile territory as of late. He's been spending a lot of time in non-Jewish territory. But he comes back to Jewish territory, and as soon as he gets there, the Pharisees confront him. They confront him because they notice that, and this is the key word there in verse 1, that some of his disciples, verse 2 rather, some of his disciples eat with defiled hands. Some of his disciples are not partaking in this tradition of hand-washing before they eat. And the Pharisees are not really cool with that. And honestly, I don't wash my hands before my, I eat half the time, so I'd be in trouble too. But they're not cool with that because they're not practicing this tradition. And so they come to Jesus and say, dude, Jesus, uh, there's kind of this unwritten rule, and it's kind of just you know, this thing that you're expected to do. You need to be washing your hands. Your disciples need to be washing their hands. But here's the thing. This is exactly what Mark says it is. This is a tradition. It's a tradition. It is not in the law. It is not in Torah. It is not in what they consider to be God's word. It's a tradition. Nothing more, nothing less. And you may be thinking to yourself that, oh great, the young guy is going to start talking about how terrible tradition is and how evil tradition is and how it's bad in and of itself. And really, that's not what I'm here to do at all. In fact, tradition is not inherently evil because there can be good traditions But there are bad traditions. For example, this past week, I got on the church Facebook page and asked a few people to submit traditions that they are fond of, traditions that they practice that bring back good memories. And I got a couple really interesting submissions. Number one, Dawn Mulder submitted that every single New Year's Eve, her friends and family will go to a hotel And they will stay at a hotel, and they will eat and play games and have a great time. They do it every year. They look forward to it. That's a good tradition. Another good tradition is that Aaron Walker shared that each Thanksgiving, Joshua, Aaron, and Bree, none of them like Thanksgiving food, the traditional Thanksgiving food. And so they will make a homemade pizza with all kinds of ridiculously weird toppings on it. And that's their tradition. And the thing is, we look at that, and that's a neat, unique, fun tradition for them. And it's something that you can't really replicate. It's theirs. That's a good tradition. Another good tradition is that Michelle Vega shared that every single Christmas, her kids get new toothbrushes from Santa in their stockings. That's a tradition. Uh, Kim Cora shared that every single Christmas Eve, they watch Christmas Vacation together as a family. My family did the same thing, to be honest. So there's all these good traditions out there. And one of my favorite traditions was actually one that happened recently, and I was really, really jealous when I heard that Megan Coors got to go to the Kentucky Derby, because I would do anything to go to the Kentucky Derby. I would love to go to the Kentucky Derby. If I had to choose that or the Super Bowl, I would choose Kentucky Derby in a heartbeat, because I look at the Kentucky Derby, and I see all the tradition that happens. You've got the ladies wearing the big hats. You've got all the people dressed up. You've got people drinking mint juleps. You have the guy with the red coat that blows the trumpet that says the horses are about you know, ready to go. And then you have the singing of my old Kentucky home. And so you have all these traditions. And when I watch it on TV, it just sends a chill up my spine because I would love to be there and love to see all that stuff in person. And so there are good traditions out there, but likewise, there are plenty of bad traditions. For example, in the Philippines, each Easter, there are young men who crucify themselves. They get themselves crucified. 
And we're not talking like, you know, church Easter play, standing on a block that you can't see and just little ropes on your wrists. We're talking like legit nails through your wrists, crucifixion, that these guys do. And the reason they do it is, one, to show solidarity with Jesus, but two, they do it because they think that their blood can atone for their sin. And that is a bad tradition, in my opinion. Number one, it's completely impractical. You're going to get yourself hurt really bad or potentially killed. And number two, theologically, it's just completely off the mark because there's only one person whose blood atones for sin, and that person doesn't get crucified in the Philippines. That person gets crucified in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So that is a bad tradition in multiple ways. Another bad tradition, I think, and I may be stepping on some toes here if you have a bucket list, but I think the running of the bulls in Pamplona is the stupidest tradition that you could possibly imagine. That is so dumb. I mean, why would you do that? You would run with bulls that can kill you, and each year 200 to 300 people are hurt in the running of the bulls. But they do it because it's tradition even though it is completely illogical. So I think that's a bad tradition. And then the last one I want to mention, and I thought of this this week, if you're a country music fan, you may know of Hank Williams Jr. Hank Williams Jr. sang a song called Family Tradition. And the song was all about, Hank, why do you abuse alcohol? Well, because it's family tradition. Why do you roll smokes? Why do you do drugs? Well, it's family tradition. Well, Hank, that's a bad tradition. It may be family tradition, but it's a bad tradition. So tradition in and of itself is not inherently evil, but there can be good traditions and there can be bad traditions. And in this case, we see the Pharisees are turning this tradition into a bad tradition because they are enforcing their tradition upon the people around them. They're treating their tradition like it's law, like it's set in stone, when really it isn't. It's a tradition. And yet the people who don't practice it are condemned. The people who don't practice it are looked at as unclean. They're looked at as defiled. And so they're forcing this tradition on the people around them. And if it's in the law, that's one thing. They're the spiritual leaders. They're supposed to go by the law. If it's in the law, you know what? Yeah, tell people they need to do it. That's fine. But this isn't in the law. It's not in Torah. It's not in God's word given to Moses. If it was, no Jew would have questioned it. No Jew would have tried to get around it. But it wasn't there. And yet the Pharisees are treating it like it's there. And Jesus does not take kindly to that. Look at his response in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus does not take kindly to this because he's accusing the Pharisees of saying, you know what? You're elevating your traditions above the law of God. You're elevating your preferences over Torah. You're elevating all this stuff. And the problem, even deeper problem with it, is that even if you are following this tradition, even if you are following the law, what's truly in the law, well, your hearts are far from God. Your hearts are far from God. Therefore, all that you're doing is in vain because your hearts are far from God. And he cites Isaiah about it. And the thing is, this tradition probably started out with good intentions. 
It probably started out with good intentions. There's this term that you may have heard before called hedging the law. And this is probably an example of hedging the law. Hedging the law, just to give you kind of a contemporary example, let's say that you want to call uh, the Old Testament the New Testament. Let's call that, you know, law, just for the sake of this example. Let's call that the law. And in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see that you're not supposed to commit sexual morality. You're not supposed to be lusting with your eyes. And so you make the conclusion that, okay, the law makes it pretty clear that I should not look at pornography. Okay? Pretty good. Pretty good conclusion. Because it is there. So I shouldn't look at pornography. But then you go to your church and you say, hey, you know, I've been struggling with this. I've been looking at this stuff. I know I don't need to. I know I shouldn't be. I know in my heart it's wrong. What do I do? And the church says, okay, well, we're going to help you out through this. We're going to be here for you. But here's a good piece of wisdom. Maybe you should keep your computer out of a room where you can be alone. Simple, practical step to maybe help you avoid that temptation. And that's good wisdom. That's good insight. It's a good piece of advice if you're struggling with that. So the person does that. They take their computer out of a place where they can be alone with it. But then over time, all of a sudden, that becomes a law in and of itself. It becomes not just a piece of advice. All of a sudden, the church is teaching, hey, you're not just sinning if you look at pornography, but you are sinning if you have a computer in a room where you can be alone with it. And really, it's not in the law. It's just a piece of advice. It's just a tradition. It's just a piece of wisdom, and it may not be bad in and of itself, but it becomes bad when it's enforced as law. And to be honest, the church, we have been guilty of this a lot throughout history. Another practical example of something that kind of gets controversial today is alcohol. There are some churches that teach that under any circumstances, it is wrong to drink alcohol. It is sinful to drink alcohol. Doesn't matter when you're doing it, doesn't matter where you're doing it, doesn't matter why you're doing it, doesn't matter who's doing it, it is sinful to do this. And that becomes a problem because Old Testament and New Testament do not make that claim. There are claims about not getting drunk. There are claims about obeying the law of the land. No doubt about that. No one should question that. But there is no claim about it being inherently bad in and of itself. There is no claim in Scripture that someone who's drinking responsibly and drinking legally is doing anything wrong. And yet there are tons and tons of churches out there that will tell anyone that if you are drinking under any circumstances, sorry, you're sinning. If you shop at a grocery store where they sell alcohol, you're sinning. If you eat at a restaurant where alcohol is next door, you're sinning. That's how crazy it can get. We make these hedges, and maybe that hedge started out with good intentions. Maybe it started out with, you know what, maybe we should advise people not to drink to avoid getting drunk. Okay, maybe that's a good piece of advice. Not everyone has to take it, but maybe it's a good piece of advice for some people. But the thing is, it's not law, and yet it becomes law. And here's what the Pharisees seem to be doing, the exact same thing with washing hands. And the deeper problem, like Jesus said, citing Isaiah, the deeper problem is not just their tradition. It's not just the fact that they're elevating it above law. The deeper problem is that their hearts are far from God. And thus, everything they're doing is in vain anyway. Their hearts are far from him. And they leave the commandment of God to hold their tradition. So moving on to verse 9, 
Jesus gives this example of how the Pharisees will compromise the word of God for their tradition. So starting in verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But if you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, there are several different interpretations of this passage, but it seems that what Jesus is doing is he's giving them this example. And let's say you have this young man who gets in a fight with his parents, gets in a fight with his parents, and he knows that the law says, obey your father and mother. Obey your father and mother, take care of them, honor them, revere them. When they get old, make sure that they're taken care of. Do these things. And there's no way around that. It's in the law. It's in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. So this man gets in a fight with mom and dad. And he says, you know what, mom, dad, I'm done. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to honor you. I'm not going to take care of you when you need help when you get old. So all the time and all the resources and all the help that I was going to give you, that is korban now. And korban would have been a gift given to God with an oath. So the kid is saying, you know what, mom and dad, I'm taking all that stuff I wasn't going to give to you, and I'm giving it to God instead. So now you know what's up. That's basically what this guy is saying. But then let's say a little time passes, and he says, you know what? That really was not right for me to do. I said that uh, in anger. That was a rash commitment I made. I really didn't mean it. I do love my parents. I know the law says I need to honor them. I know in my heart that's the right thing for me to do. So I'm going to do that instead. I didn't mean it when I said it. So he goes back and says, you know what? I'm going to take my korban back. What do you think the Pharisees would say? They would say, nope, sorry, you made an oath. You made a commitment. Doesn't matter what you, if you know what the law says. Doesn't matter if you know in your heart you're supposed to honor your parents. Doesn't matter what Torah says. You made a commitment. There's no turning back on it. Sorry about your luck. And thus, they would be compromising what this guy knows to be what God is commanding him to do. They're compromising it. Because they made an oath in a hurry, out of anger, and they won't let him change his mind. Even though he's trying to obey the law. Even though he's trying to do what he knows is right. And that's a problem. And Jesus doesn't take kindly to it. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him it can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So basically, they leave these Pharisees behind, and the disciples, once again, this is kind of becoming a theme, they don't get it. They don't understand. They have to ask Jesus to explain things. And so he starts explaining things to them. And he says in verse 18, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus uses this 
very practical example to tell the people why what they touch and what they eat is not going to be what defiles them. Because he says, guys, think about it. What you eat, you eat it, and it stays in there for a while, and it comes out the other end. So it's not going to defile you. It's not going to make you unclean. That's not what makes you unclean because it's not in your heart. That's what defiles you. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I think it's pretty safe to say that Jesus pretty much covers the whole gamut uh, with that list of negative things. And what he says is, guys, what you touch and what you eat is not going to make you commit sexual immorality. What you touch and what you eat is not going to make you slander. The thing that's going to make you do that is your heart. Because your heart is sinful. Your heart is tainted. Your heart is damaged by sin. That's what's going to cause you to be impure. That's what's going to cause you to do these things. That's what's going to defile you, not what you touch, not what you eat. It's your heart. So we look at that and we say, okay, well, we just need to get our hearts right, right? It's pretty easy. Nothing, no big deal. Get our hearts right. Stop doing bad things. Start doing good things. Start having good habits. Stop having bad habits. Be good people. It's that simple, right? That's all we have to do, to have good hearts, new hearts. Well, I'm no medical expert, and I was hoping Carl would be here so I could ask him, but last time I checked, I've never heard of anyone being able to do heart surgery on themselves. Maybe they can. Maybe there's someone out there who's really talented. I don't know. But I don't think you can do heart surgery on yourself. And the problem that we have is that we need heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. And it's something that we can't do. It's something that we can't do through doing good things and not doing bad things or changing our habits. We can't change our hearts. We can't do it on our own. We can't perform our own heart surgery. We need God to do it for us. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 says this, starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. 
I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So what we see here is that God makes this promise that he can give you a new heart, that he can take that heart of stone away and give you a heart of flesh. And that's what we need. We don't need to do good things and develop good habits and be good people. We need new hearts. And only God can provide that for us. We can't do it on our own. In verse 24, Jesus, Mark actually, seems to be giving an example of someone who might be on the right track, who might get this, who might get the whole needing a new heart thing. Look at verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now these are both Gentile areas. And so what we see here is that Jesus may be getting a little bit fed up with the Jewish people. Because up to this point in Mark, the people who miss the point are primarily Jewish people. And the people who seem to get it are Gentile people. So Jesus might be fed up with the Jewish people at this point. He just has to get away, go to some Gentile territory. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So here we see this woman, Gentile woman, comes to Jesus and begs him to heal her daughter. And you notice what she does. She does the same thing as a few of the people we talked about a few weeks ago. She throws herself at Jesus' feet. The people who got it a few weeks ago were the people who threw themselves at Jesus' feet. And here we see this woman doing the exact same thing. And she begs him to cast out this demon. But then you look at Jesus' response, and quite frankly, Jesus' response is a little bit kind of rude, a little bit mean almost. He says, you can't give the children's bread to the dogs. So what would he be referring to here? Back then, it was common to refer to Gentiles as dogs, and not in a positive way, in a negative way. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? The Jews do have priority. They are God's chosen people. God chose them from a long time ago. God gave them the prophets. And they get priority. And what does this woman say? Does she get offended and say, who do you think you are Call me a dog? I'm not a dog. Come on, heal my daughter. I thought you were nice. I thought you healed people. You're a jerk. But instead, look at her response. Verse 28, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The humility in that response is incredible. She's not about defending herself. She's not about proving herself. She's not about maintaining her dignity or her pride. She says, you know what, Jesus? I don't deserve anything you could give me. I don't deserve healing. My daughter doesn't deserve this. We are just lowly Gentiles. We have nothing to offer you. We could never earn anything from you. But she's humble. That's the thing that she has. She's humble. And look at his response, verse 29. For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. 
And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. That humility that she shows, that's a mark of a heart that's been made new. That's a heart, that's the mark of a heart that has been transplanted. And this woman, yeah, she may, we don't know what her status is, quite frankly. We don't really know what happened to her after this. But she shows something there. She shows that she has that humility that God looks for. That's the mark of a heart that's been made new. That's the mark of a heart that's been transformed. That's a mark of a heart that has been transplanted by God. It's not something you do on your own. It's not what you do through just good things or bad things. That's not what determines it. Where your heart is at. That's the question. And only God can change your heart. It's not about fulfilling traditions. It's not about fulfilling laws. It's not about doing good things. It's not about being church. It's not about reading scripture eight times a day. That's not what it's about. It's about having a new heart. It's about having a heart that's been transformed. In Psalm 51, David had just made the biggest mistake of his life. He had sinned with Bathsheba. And this was the low point of David's life. God had blessed him so much, and yet he had abandoned God in that moment. And Nathan, a prophet, confronts him, and he says, David, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And David's convicted of his sin. And he says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What we see here is that even the people who are following God Sometimes we, too, have to ask God, please fix our hearts. Fix our hearts. Because sometimes we do things for impure motives. We're not always where we need to be. But the thing is that we can't cure that. Only God can. And regardless of where you're at, whether you're following Christ or not, I hope that you'll pray that prayer that David prayed. God created me a clean heart. Fix me. Help me. Perform that surgery I need that I can't do on my own. That's the mark of someone who gets it. That's the mark of someone who has achieved, well, that's not a bad, that's not a good word, has reached that salvation that God offers. It's not through any effort they made. It's through that simple act of saying, God, I can't do this on my own. Create in me a clean heart. I hope that you'll make that decision today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. God, there comes a point in all of our lives when we realize our sinfulness, when we realize how messed up we truly are, that we have no option but to throw ourselves at your feet the way this woman did and just beg you to create clean hearts in us. Because we can hold all the traditions we want. We can uphold rules and laws and try really, really hard. We can do that stuff all day. 
but we can't have pure hearts on our own. And that's why we humbly seek you. We come to you asking for help. And God, I pray that every single day we'll have the humility of that Syrophoenician woman that will fall before you and beg you for healing, beg you for mercy, and trust in your grace. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to make that decision today, we're going to have a couple elders standing at the side of the room.